From UW-Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm Eric Wilson-Edge. Today on the pod, a conversation with the UW-Tacoma Associate Professor Eric Madfis. Madfis is an expert on mass shootings and has been quoted in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Politico, and the Washington Post. Madfis has written four books about mass shootings. His latest, All-American Massacre, The Tragic Role of American Culture and Society in Mass Shootings, comes out in the fall. We talked to Madfis in the days after the shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, that killed 21 people and injured 17. We'll talk about gun violence in the United States, including the idea that the best way to stop a bad guy with a gun is by having a good guy with a gun. Madfis will also discuss ways to prevent school shootings, which research suggests has more to do with school environment and less to do with metal detectors or safety resource officers. Eric Madfis, welcome to Pod Defiance. Uh, It's great to have you here. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Eric, this first question isn't so much about the research. It's more about the researcher. Uh, In this case, that's you. I'm curious, this this work can be hard. Um, You're dealing with often sad or tragic situations where people are killed or wounded. So I wonder, how do you keep it from getting to you? How do you do this work um, and don't let it overwhelm you? I think on a day-to-day basis, like regularly, I have a pretty regular job, you know, in terms of, of what my, my, my normally am doing, you know, I, I, I teach classes, I, I, I do research and I write, you know, and I, and I, you know, do have lots of meetings and stuff like that. So on a day-to-day basis, I have a kind of conventional job, but it's true that, that when like kind of the most terrible things in the world happen, mass shootings, you know, school shootings, hate crimes, like, like truly like some of the most disturbing, upsetting things happen right? I'm inundated with all sorts of requests for public comments and, and, and media interviews and, and, and other kinds of things like that. And so I really can't ignore them, t- t- turn away, like, you know, shut, shut them out, even regardless of how disturbing they may be. And, and certainly the, this most recent one, Uvalde, is, is particularly disturbing, not only because it has little kids and, and just like the complete you know, horrifying lack of police response and stuff like that. It's, it's obviously a really upsetting event. But I think, uh, you know, I study a lot of upsetting things that sort of, um, you know, that my, my experience, and it's true in, in criminal justice system in generally, I mean, I think a lot of people who study criminal justice, you, you study a lot of horrifying things in general. I mean, sort of just basic information about the criminal justice system is lots of lots of terrible things there. Um, so it's not necessarily unique to me, but it is true that I do have some unique resources in that, you know, one of my, my mentors, my dissertation advisor, um, and sort of my, my kind of life mentor in many ways is, is, is Jack Levin, who's a, a, a professor emeritus at Northeastern University where I went to school. And, and he's one of the first sort of scholars to study um, mass murder, kind of invented the, the, the term mass murder. Um, and and sort of look at mass shootings and stuff like this. And so I certainly have seen him as a model and a resource. And I think that at the bottom, at the end of the day, right, it's it can be taxing, certainly, and, and upsetting work. And, you know, I, I have young kids, so thinking about this stuff is is, is, is upsetting for sure. Um, but I think you got to keep in mind, you know, the, the way in which you're hopefully making a difference and, and sort of think about, you know, hopefully making the not only sort of increase increase knowledge and sort of the research that you do in, in that community, but trying to 
influence policy to the extent you can, influence the conversation, make it try to make it a little bit more intelligent, a little bit more research informed, a little bit more, um, a little less crazy than it often is, unfortunately, around these things, less sort of like emotionally, um, you know, laden and, and not not very, um, you know, informed by by sort of what actually works and stuff like that. So I guess try to keep that in mind, you know, that it, that it's for a larger purpose. But yeah, it's definitely, it can, it can get you down sometimes for sure. So when these sorts of things happen, um, it's almost inevitable that the conversation about how to prevent these tragedies from occurring starts up. And one of the first things that gets talked about is if you want to stop somebody who has a gun, who is doing, who is shooting uh, a school or some other place, the, the, the best way to stop that person in that moment is to have uh, someone else who has a gun who can shoot that person and stop them. I think the the idea is the the way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a gun. I'm curious, what does the research say about that? Does that happen? Um, does it work? So it is one that you hear a lot and it keeps it comes up sort of perpetually after mass shootings and things like that and school shootings. And And I think, first of all, you know, if we talk about sort of the evidence here, there's there's no evidence of talking about a school setting. There's no evidence at all that this sort of that you have like a, a an you know armed civilians intervening and, and, and saving lives in a school shooting that has happened in mass shootings with like um, in other uh, locations there have been you know people who are armed who intervened and sort of save lives that has happened it's literally never happened in a school shooting ever so there's no even like anecdotal evidence to support that even though that's that's often what we argue and so uh, you know more generally I think it's a, a sort of a, a, a fantasy that we have that that's sort of the people could could do that so easily sort of people who aren't necessarily armed and and trained in these things and I'll talk about sort of the, the evidence here I mean there's been been studies that show that sort of that that they, they don't really reduce uh the number of people um killed and injured during a school attack if we're talking about looking at at like concealed carry laws if you have for the so they've done comparisons and looking um over time and across states and things like this, and that that sort of you actually find rates of violent crime increase with every uh, sort of additional year that you have a, a right to carry law was in place, sort of higher rates of aggregate violent crime sort of than if they hadn't been adopted. So it's not necessarily the case that if you have sort of if you look at the data in the aggregate that you have more sort of you have reductions in, in, in mass shootings or violent crime when you have more people, you know, concealed carrying and sort of anecdotally, there's a few isolated cases where, where perhaps things were helped, but you know, if you look at sort of the conception of this sort of in, in general, you know, it's it's true that that people who do this for a living and are trained constantly. So like law enforcement, they still don't hit their intended targets 20 percent of the time. Like that's that's sort of one statistic sort of on average. But if you're talking about just like the regular population um, are going to even be more more likely to, to have uh, sort of uh, harm caused. And if we think about sort of there's been simulations, for example, um, looking at sort of um, in, in these kind of settings, what happens? And it's a much more chaotic scene than I think people conceive of, right? It's this this chaotic situation where sometimes if law enforcement enters the scene or someone else with an armed, um, you know, someone else armed enters the scene, they don't necessarily know exactly what's happening, who is innocent in the scene, who, and if you have multiple people holding weapons, there, there have been incidents where someone thought someone else was the shooter that wasn't. So there's there's, there's potential for extra chaos there. And 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 the sort of simulations I mentioned have saw, seen sort of lots of cases where just, you know, innocent people get shot. So I think it, it's it's much more complicated than the notion that you just sort of arm everyone. And, and particularly in Uvalde, like, like I think that is definitely demonstrated. There were lots of quote unquote good people with guns. 
um, in that situation who, who weren't particularly good, first of all, in that situation and, and didn't sort of do as their training told them to do and didn't sort of carry out their kind of most basic, basic function as, as school police. And um, like I, I and sort of the idea that, that that that's the solution, I think, is 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 really um, not so helpful. It's it's in part of American culture. Like we really we watch action movies. We have all these shows that that teach you that the solution is you have an armed vigilante, an armed person to come in and, and solve problems. So I, I definitely think it's it's you know not only the, the access that we have to guns in in this country, but it's also the culture that we have that 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 sort of props up these you know uh, images in people's minds that that um, and gun culture sort of more broadly that 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 is kind of unique that I think props this stuff up. So I think that's that's part of it too, for sure. I originally interviewed Dr. Madfus back in early June. The plan was to release this episode a few days later. However, the episode was delayed because I, along with a few members of my family, contracted COVID. I'm back at it now, and there are important updates to this conversation. In late June, the United States Congress passed a gun control bill that does, among other things, strengthen background checks for buyers younger than 21, provides federal funding for mental health programs and school security upgrades, and closes the so-called boyfriend loophole by blocking gun sales to those convicted of abusing unmarried intimate partners. A little more than 10 days later after Congress passed that bill, a gunman opened fire on a July 4th parade in Highland Park, Illinois killing seven and wounding 25. Finally, on July 17th, a Texas House committee investigating the Uvalde school shooting released a preliminary report. According to the Texas Tribune, the 77-page report provides a damning portrayal of a family unable to recognize warning signs, a school district that had strayed from strict adherence to its safety plan, and a police response that disregarded its own active shooter training. So when we talk about mass shootings and school shootings, is there a pattern? Um, if we look at the research, does it tell us anything about demographically who is carrying out these crimes? What, what does the research say? Yeah, well, they're largely males. I mean, they're, they're boys and men who commit mass shootings. It's sort of um, depending on how you measure it. We're talking 94 to 98 percent of the time. Um, and so that, that's that's definitely sort of the vast majority of who we're talking about. They tend to be in the teenage years and sort of middle age. Those are sort of the two periods of time in which people tend to commit mass shootings. Um, it's usually sort of at the end of their their high school or beginning of, or, or, or end of college years, um, and then um, in middle age. And, that, and in part, that's because of their kind of crucial life transition points where you take stock of, of where you are, compare yourself to other people, and. Um, whether or not you're graduating, going to college, if you're if you're have a successful life, you know, uh, marriage and kids or not, and so um, you're making the, kind of have the kind of job you want. These are sort of life transitions. So that's part of why those ages are are, are most common where you have school and, and mass shootings happen. Um, they do tend to be sort of you know disproportionately. We're talking about um, you know white heterosexual men too. That that is sort of uh, you know uh, the most common sort of profile in general of. of of mass shooters and school shooters, which also is talking about where school shootings happen. Single victim homicides, that sort of single victim school shootings, th- those tend to happen in, in um, urban areas. But if we're talking about sort of mass shootings at schools, those tend to be almost exclusively in suburban and rural communities, or, uh, suburban and rural schools. schools. Um, they tend to be people who, um, you talk about sort of mental health issues. There have been a few that have 
been schizophrenic and sort of delusional, the notion that we sort of conventionally think of as as sort of mental mental illness as being mentally ill or being out of touch with reality. But that's a pretty small percentage. Um, what's most common we think about sort of mental health issues associated with with um, mass and school shootings tends to be actually pretty common mental health issues like depression and suicidal ideation. So they're often suicidal and part of that's why they kill themselves or commit suicide by cop at the end of their massacre. So um, those are actually pretty common around some of the more, more common mental health issues. But that's sort of true in, in, in mass shooter population as well. As well. Um, they tend to be people who have experienced sort of long-term, long-term strain and stress and sort of negative life experiences. They tend to sort of externalize blame and, and, and sort of see uh, all the failures in the life as, as being a sort of a response to other people, not themselves. It's sort of not their fault, but other people's fault. And so in school shooters, that, that's often, you know, feeling ignored or bullied or, or, or they haven't been popular in the way they want or, or um, successful in athletics or in academics or sort of a, a number of other ways in which they could um, achieve their um, success or, or, or feel le- their legitimacy or sort of feel like they're, um, you know, successful and tends to be with workplace shooters and other adult mass killers. It could be things like you know, divorce or family separation or, or being fired or things like that. And they tend to sort of, um, you know, plan these things for a long time. That's the other sort of thing. I think people think that they're these kind of spontaneous events, which it's really not by and large. They're, they're often planned for um, at least days, if not weeks or months um, in, in advance. Columbine, we know they plan for at least a year. So um, I think those are some of the pretty common characteristics um, that you see in these cases. So are the folks who do these kinds of things, um, is it is it fair to say that this is sort of an attention-seeking behavior? I mean, certainly part of it is that they feel emasculated. They're boys who've been been picked on or ignored or haven't, they, they, they're often entitled. They feel like they haven't gotten the girls they've wanted, the the popularity they wanted, the the whatever it is. Um, and so I think it is it is a way to seek attention and to feel masculine, to feel powerful, to feel sometimes to gain lasting sense of, of fame or infamy. Um, that's a big motivation of a lot of mass shooters is desire for fame. Um, and so it is a way to, you know, if you're going to kill yourself, it's a way to sort of uh, have this last act and and make it feel impactful and, and make other people sort of aware of you, right? And 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 um, to show sort of a show of force that's, that's going to get attention and, and make people think you actually are a powerful person who has some uh, some control or agency. So I, I think, yeah, I think that's not a uh, an incorrect way to look at it to some extent, for sure. In one of your books, you talk about maybe one of the best ways to stop a school shooting, and it doesn't necessarily include metal detectors or school safety resource officers. It actually has a lot to do with the environment at the school. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so it is true that in the wake of lots of mass shootings, the same sort of solutions get proposed again and again, and you're hearing them again now, right? Like, you know, got to harden targets, got to make schools more securitized, got to add more um, armed guards and, and, and police and things like this. And, you know, first of all, from a perspective of, of like deterrence, the idea that if you have these things, you're not going to have a school shooting. I think that's just empirically proven false over time. I mean, we just know that like, you know, if you have a metal detectors, they, you know, there have been cases where a school shooter just, just shoots the person wearing the metal detector and then goes into the school. If it's about surveillance cameras, 
you know, lots of school shootings, Columbine included, had, um, you know, surveillance cameras. And in fact, maybe they just get some extra fame that way. You can see the footage. So it doesn't stop like, you know, it's not going to stop someone from from committing a school shooting. And the same thing with with resource officers, you know, lots of um, or or sort of university police, lots of school shootings on, um, you know, high schools, middle schools and um, even college campuses have had um, police in some form. And it doesn't mean that they um, are going to not have a school shooting there. That's sort of the argument that people make. And, you know, you've had police there in those those situations. Sometimes it is true they can improve response times and stuff like that. But the idea that if you just have them there means you're not going to have a school shooting, I think, is just just uh, sort of been it's just categorically untrue. And so in contrast to that, um, you know, what what I found basically is that in the vast majority of cases when this is true for mass shooters, but particularly true for school shooters, people often um, tell other people about their plans, about their um, plot to to attack a school. And so I looked at schools um, around the Northeast that had had a, um, a plan to uh, either bomb up a school or or shoot a bunch of people in the school or both sometimes, um, and what actually happened to avert those situations. And so what I found is it's called, uh, this is sort of the secret service term, they call it leakage. And that basically refers to the idea that, that they usually leak, they tell other people about their plans, whether they try to recruit other people to attack people with them, whether they try to um, threaten certain people or warn perhaps their friends and say, you know, don't come to school next Tuesday because um, I want you to be safe, things like that. That happens in in uh, the vast majority of these cases. And so what's really crucial is that kids come forward when they are exposed to those things. And even the cases that I looked at where there was like one or two sometimes kids who came forward, there are often dozens of kids who heard about the threat in some way or had some information about it, but didn't come forward. And then part that's because of sort of, a you know, there's a student code of silence where, you know, you're not supposed to, um, you know, snitch on your friends and stuff like that. But also I, I would argue that it also is about the culture of the school. And there's lots of research across a number of different disciplines looking at different types of um, reporting behaviors and shows that sort of positive school environments where you have, you know, students trust the adults in the building when students feel like the discipline in the building is fair. They have some sort of, you know, it's not racially discriminatory. It's not biased against you know students of color in some way, or it's not, um, you know, overly punitive and harsh, like zero tolerance policies. If you have sort of an environment that, that students feel like they can go to the authorities, um, in, in the school and not feel like they're going to get in trouble themselves for doing that or feel like they're 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 going to be listened to and sort of treated treated fairly um then that inc- increases a whole bunch of different sort of reporting behaviors so that's true for you know extreme situations like school shootings but it's also true for you know issues of of domestic violence of bullying of just general like like fighting and and, and aggression and stuff like that um of of kids bringing guns to school and other weapons. Like there's lots of research sort of across the board showing that, that if you have those kind of positive school environments, you can really increase reporting behaviors, which really is what prevents these things. The other thing I, I talk about is sort of restorative discipline, restorative justice practices in schools, which, which are another thing that really um, can improve uh, positive school climates and, and make it a situation where kids feel like they have some agency and, and, and feel comfortable coming forward. So those are some of the things I, I sort of think really work better than the sort of securitized approach, which often has the reverse effect. Like, you know, if you have this, this zero tolerance policy where kids get in trouble sort of across the board, that's going to actually make them come forward less. So I think, and, and, and sort of not have a, have a um, positive school environment and not feel safe coming forward. So I think a lot of the stuff that we're doing can, can have an adverse effect actually. And, and um, not only, you know, punish kids where they don't need to be punished, but also sort of really potentially, um, you know, cause kids not to come forward and, and, and lead to further sort of tragedies. You have a new book coming out in the fall that you've co-authored, and you look at 
gun violence in America. And specifically, you get into why we have gun violence in America. And so I'm wondering what role does American culture play in, you know, the level of gun violence we see in this country? So I, it's it's an edited volume I have with my, my co-author, um, Adam Lankford, who's um, professor of criminology and criminal justice at the um, University of Alabama. And um, he's, he's done a lot of work looking sort of cross-national comparisons and, and sort of making the case that um, it's true that the America that America has far more mass shootings than um, anywhere else across the globe, which uh, believe it or not has actually been a controversial uh, claim in the past, but I think something that's that's maybe self-evident to most Americans today. But certainly it's true that that, you know, particularly looking at the last 20 years, we've seen like many more mass shootings and, and, and many of the most deadly mass shootings in the last 20 years, too. And so um, we looked at at um, and we sort of had co- uh, contributors from a, um, a number of different disciplines. You know, we had criminologists and sociologists and psychologists and social workers and historians, uh, film studies and media studies scholars, political scientists and uh, epidemiologists, sort of lots of different scholars sort of taking at us from from different approaches to understand how sort of American society, American sort of structures in society, American institutions help contribute to this problem. Right. And so the obvious one is guns. That's certainly true. We have more guns, um, right, than anywhere else, more guns than people. So that's certainly part of the problem, like without a question. But it, it's not just that also, right, um, part of it is about um, not just access, but sort of a, a, a gun culture that we have. Um, so if we compare, for example, to like Switzerland, Switzerland has the Swiss, the Swiss uh, population in, in, in Switzerland has um, a lot of guns, but they also have, have um, you know, uh, a lot of regulations. It's it's sort of uh, usually through um, military service, which is required. That's part of the reason why most people are are armed there. But also, they just don't have the same gun culture, where the notion is that sort of um, this kind of uh, that you solve your problems with 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 guns. That you that you um, that sort of being a gun owner is your identity um, in a lot of ways. So I think that the, the culture around those things are different, and that translates in in a lot of different ways. I mean. Um, some of the things we look at in the book are sort of American masculinity and the way that that sort of plays a role in, in, in sort of, um, um, you know, violent solutions as being sort of um, normalized in different kinds of contexts. Um, you know, we talk about sort of white supremacy and sort of um, how that plays a role and, and, and um, particular with, with hate crimes, sort of hate crime mass shootings and, and a number of high profile mass shootings being perpetrated sort of deliberately with a, a sort of that intent of, of trying to target you know, Latino communities or, or um, you know, African-American communities, particular communities, things like Jewish Jewish uh, communities, things like this that have happened, um, uh, like a, a number of, of, of really deadly incidents in recent years. And so um, that's sort of par- part of this and sort of the, the we have some, you know, we have a, a great sort of historian trace the legacy of, of like white replacement theory and stuff like that, about how that, that actually goes back a, a lot longer in American history than people think. And, and sort of how that that feeds into, you know, contemporary conversations and sort of uh, and how a lot of these things are, are, are bred sort of through uh, white supremacist websites and stuff like that. You know, we have people talk about uh, the media, sort of how, how um, a lot of the media sort of sensationalizes these things and, and what are some better approaches to cover that um, and in sort of social media and in sort of the mass media, how, how you can cover things in a way that doesn't um, kind of give killers what they want, which is which is sort of the fame and, and infamy and sort of having their name and, and face sort of blast around the t- around sort of, you know, national news media or international media sort of in perpetuity. So some things you can do around there, but certainly that that's part of the problem, I'd say. 
certainly around American politics and that we've sort of, this has become, you know, a, a really heated partisan issue that, that, that we can't have sort of, you know, a fruitful, you know, rational conversation around a lot of these things, unfortunately. And that's for, uh, you know, a number of, of, of reasons it's becoming increased sort of increasingly a partisan issue um, in recent years. And, and um, I think that, that, sort of uh, certainly part of the problem is sort of our, our inability to get any kind of effective policy done around this issue. And, and so I think that that's sort of part of, part of the problem, certainly American education system. I have sort of kind of talked about that a little bit, but certainly, um, you know, a lot of stuff that we've done in recent years um, are not necessarily helpful in terms of, of preventing these things in, in educational contexts and things that would result in more healthy uh, schools and, and schools that have, you know, uh, mental health supports and other kinds of things that, you know, we have a lot, we have so many schools in this country, for example, that have lots of resource officers, but no uh, guidance counselors or no social workers or no um, school psychologists. And so that sort of, I think is, is, is not necessarily a helpful approach that, that, that is, is not helping things. And our mental health system, um, like our broader healthcare system is, is, is pretty broken and, and, you know, has, doesn't, has so many barriers to, um, to access, whether that's financial or bureaucratic or other kinds of things. So that, that certainly is part of the problem too. And, and so I think, yeah, it's multifaceted. There's, there's lots of reasons why uh, America has a lot of mass shootings. And I'd say these are things that we could all address. These are not things that we couldn't do things about. It's not inevitable that we have so many more mass shootings, but um, I do think the problem is, is it's not only uh, that we have more guns that would, that's certainly a, a huge chunk of it, but I think it is, it's a, it's a number of, of sort of facets that, that, that feed into this. The music you're hearing is by UW Tacoma Associate Teaching Professor Nicole Blair. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. You will find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Pocket Casts. Oh,